Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. We've got a few show notes for you at the top of the show right now. First up, you might notice that my audio sounds a little weird or a little different if you're just listening to this uh, as a podcast. And the reason being is that right before we started recording, my uh, my microphone just wasn't working, and uh, we couldn't figure out why. So rather than... It's because you suck, Matt. That's why. <laughs> That's helpful. Thank you. Thank you for that. So yeah, right now we don't the the audio might be a little a uh, little less refined, uh, but that's the reason. And hopefully we can get that sorted uh, in the near future. Uh, another show note is next week we are going to have two podcasts. So y'all voted on what movie uh, you all wanted us to talk about. The winner was There Will Be Blood, which is currently available on Netflix. So we will be talking about that. But first, we will be talking about the season finale of Westworld season three on Monday. So on Monday, we'll be Westworld season three discussion, talking about the season finale, that stuff. And then later in the week, we'll talk about There Will Be Blood. So you'll get two podcasts next week. Two milkshakes, if you will. Yeah. And we'll drink them both. Um, So but this week, we're talking about Minority Report. And it was, this was a really fun one to revisit because I think it's really important not to have your opinions calcify. I think sometimes, especially when they've been challenged by people you respect, to really go back and say, like, okay, am I in the wrong here? Did I have this movie wrong? And I was very wrong on Minority Report because the way I had viewed it was I had viewed it more through the lens of fate and being like, well you know, not just fate, but also Spielberg does have a tendency to say, like, I need my movie to end on a happy note. Like, even AI, which seems to end on a dark note, interviews with Spielberg say, it's just like, no, no, that's a happy ending. Like, so even if the viewers themselves think it's a dark ending, Spielberg moves in the direction of a happier ending. And I thought that he was kind of forcing it with Minority Report. And now in this most recent viewing, I think the ending of Minority Report is far more ambiguous than I gave it credit for, especially in terms of, if you look at the film holistically, It's all about what do you want to see? What is being seen and what do you choose to see? And I think that that emphasis on vision, especially within the realm of kind of a Greek tragedy, really emphasizes, um, it really makes the whole film come together in a way that it didn't before when I saw it back in 2002 or even before this most recent viewing. Yeah, so what was your, so your initial read on it was that it should have ended when he went into the ground. When exactly. He was captured like, in Halo. Basically, fate, the idea is that fate wins. Like, you, there is an inescape about, there is, it is in, it's inescapable, and that the best you can do is, is make peace with the people in your life, but that's as good as you can do. And then it's like, and then my thinking was, is like, people was like, ah, oh, but we got to get the bad guy. And I'm like, well, do we? Like, sometimes the bad guy wins. <laughs> you know, maybe it's just a bummer ending. But it's it's a little more nuanced than that. It's not a straight bummer ending or a straight happy ending. So what's your read on it now, specifically? Well, there's a you can read more about this on the site. I published an editorial a couple weeks ago about the ending of Minority Report. But my read on it is, is that 
the entire film is about what do you choose to see? And then sort of the last 20 minutes is kind of you as a viewer. It's kind of your final exam mm -hmm. in, per in terms of like, what do you, the individual, what are you seeing right now? Because we've just gone through an entire story where our protagonist thinks he's being shown something when really he's being shown something else. And part of that, and so the notions of perception and what you see and eyes all around you, and that really is just, it, it's throughout the entire film, you know, whether it's literally like Tom Cruise literally chasing his own eyeball or, you know, then the technology that's constantly looking at you and identifying you, it's all around. So the question is, is when at the end of the film, what do you see? What is your perception? Do you take the ending literally that he has been literally broken out of jail and he gets to bring down the bad guy and find some semblance of peace and the, the program is shut down and it's just, you know, the happy ending. Is this what you see? Or is this all in John Anderton's head? Is this the, the happy hallucination that will keep him mollified for the rest of his days as he lives as a, you know, you know, brain, you know, as a vegetable underground? Is that what do you choose to see? in that ending. And I think by asking the question, what do you choose to see? You've tied into the larger theme of perception and vision, which is running throughout the entire film. Well, I think even the cinematography supports that. I mm -hmm. Something that I was really struck by in the film, I mean, we like to rag on Janusz Kaminski for just blasting light out everyone's ass all the time, <laughs> um, which is clear in, uh, you know, especially in the post recently, I think uh, it was a little bit overboard there. Um, but in this film, the, the kind of washed out future, like it's a really shitty future. Um, and I think it's gorgeous, but also just like the decision the decisions that are made in, in terms of how the camera is moving. So when we first meet John Anderton, uh, I thought it was interesting that the camera starts over his shoulder and is kind of showing you what he is seeing. So it's very point of view oriented. A lot of the cinematography in the film is when you hit those last 15 minutes, it feels like the camera is a little bit more objective, um, a bit more of an objective observer, even up until the point where um, Burgess, where the gun goes off between Burgess and John Anderton, you don't see there's not a shot of the gun going off. There's a shot of like the aftermath, but like you are, you are supposed to, you're, you're giving kind of a, a bit of, uh, of a more objective version of this scene. And you're supposed to kind of infer, take of that what you will. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. Um, especially the way the camera is moving throughout the film and reinforcing John Anderton's uh, point of view. I mean, obviously not the entire film is not, from his point of view, because you're cutting away to Whitwer, um, and um, there's some stuff, I think, in the temple with Agatha and stuff. But I think from the opening moments, the movie is reinforcing that you are going to be viewing this story through John Anderton's eyes. And well, the camera knows how to shift as well. Like that scene with the spiders, it knows yes. the camera sort of becomes predatory, it kind of hovers mm -hmm. over this uh, dilapidated building. And I think that was another interesting way of showing, like, what do you choose to see? Because Externally, what we've been treated to up until this point is a very sterile, gray, you know, light blasted future. And so it's very clean, but very empty. Like it's kind of almost like a brushed metal kind of look to it. And up until that point, it's like, well, I guess maybe the future is better, a little dystopian, I suppose, but cleaner and, and runs smoothly. But again, it all goes into what do you choose to see? So we have this division of pre-crime and the division of pre-crime is to make people safer and cut down on murders. 
And yet behind the scenes, is this Washington, D.C. any, is it significantly better? Like when we move through these slums, you know, these visions of the future haven't helped us see what's happening right in front of us. So again, it goes to the notion of perception and what is being seen and what is unseen. Well, and it's, I mean, the film, it came out in 2002. It, it ended up kind of being a little bit prescient, but, uh, you know, I was struck even in the opening sequence, which can we talk about how brilliant it is and, and how it sets up its premise? Instead of having someone walk you through how pre-crime works, you watch it. Like, you watch it unfold. There's this yeah. incredible prologue that, uh, you know, the Howard Marks murder. You get to watch it happen. You see how everything happens. This is Spielberg showing you, not telling you um, exactly how pre-crime works. And through all of that, you immediately understand how the system works. And that leads you directly into when John is pegged for a murder, you know, um, you know how the system is supposed to work and you know what's supposed to happen when the timer runs out. Um, but to your point about like a really crappy future, when uh, the pre-crime people, sh people show up at Howard Marks' house and they drop in, there's glass everywhere. And the guy, the adulterer is uh, like very specifically like stepping on glass and going like, ow, ow. So it's kind of this team America, like, okay, everything's fine here. But they, burst in through the ceiling and like glass is everywhere and you know they have their trauma specialists and everything um but it is very it's showing kind of a, a bit of a totalitarian aspect a, a bit of a fascist aspect of of this pre-crime unit um which i think is really interesting it's people were kind of digging into politics oh for sure i mean and the whole thing is that information can be finessed so that when John Anderton is like putting all the pieces together you've got the classical music and the gloves and the mm -hmm. everything's coming together but force cannot be finessed. So yeah. when it is time to act, it's hard charging, it's kicking down the door, it's busting through the window, because at the end of the day, this notion of, of policing is still violent and urgent and has to be done in this way. And that sort of gives the urgency to the action, but it's a nice sort of dichotomy between like where information can be finessed. And we see, you know, one of the great, uh, sort of way that the film turns that on its head is at the beginning of the film, John thinks he has all this information at his fingertips. And if he just puts it in the right order, he has the solution. And then he gets sucked into a mystery where information has been purpose, has been covered up. Where someone who understands how the system works knows how to break that system. So it's not this objective observer who is always correct, much like cinema this notion of, oh, well, if it's, if it's objective and we're showing it to you, it must be true, which, again, ties back to the ending of, like, just because you're seeing this doesn't mean it's happening. And, you know, also what you're choosing to see. So when exactly. when he's in that dilapidated apartment complex, you have the God's eye view um, and you have I mean, it, on the one hand, that sequence plays funny. So you have the spiders coming in. There's a couple um in bed together, there's a couple that are fighting and you see the spiders come up and they stop fighting and the spiders scan their eyes and then they go back to fighting. But especially now, I mean, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, it's kind of hard to, to separate real life from fiction. Um, but I did find it interesting. I mean, been thinking about a lot about, you know, we're all choosing to wear masks and uh, well, hopefully most of us are choosing to wear masks, but um, you know, giving up a little bit of our freedoms for the greater good. It's so it's interesting watching this scene in which people are just like the normal is that these spiders are going to come into your house and scan your eyeballs. And it's just kind of like, all right, let it happen and then let them go away. Um, these kind of areas where people have given over in trust that this pre-crime unit is infallible and is perfect and is going to, you know, basically solve crime forever.
Yeah, I mean, there the notion of the, the future that it, this minority report existed is sort of one where privacy has been obliterated. Yeah. And you see the way it's been obliterated with the spiders that can come into your home or, you know, people can knock down your door or when you just, you know, go shopping, your eyeball gets scanned so that you can have something specifically marketed to you. I mean, we think we have micro-targeted ads now, you know, <laughs> wait till you get the little light shined in your eye um, and to, to sell you whatever. And the gap when it tells you what you bought last time you walked into the gap. Exactly. Like that level of privacy that's been obliterated to the point where not even your future is private, where the precogs can, you know, basically hack into your future to, you know, then say, and now we know that this is fixed and you are always going to do it. And we, and, you know, as long as we jumble together these little images, someone will solve the crime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not to keep bringing this up, but again, I was thinking about Westworld and devs because we're we're talking about determinism versus free will, but we're also talking about, I mean, something I found really chilling in this latest season of Westworld, which we'll talk about next week, is the idea that um, information is being given up free. Like, uh, you know, the adage, you know, if the, if the product is free, you are the product. So, you know, thinking about Facebook, we were talking about this with the social network, everyone putting in all their information, um, you know, just so they could have a fuller profile, but that's just giving your information away to, you know, who knows what they're going to do with that information. And I think that the, you know, I don't know that, that just kept, it, it made minor report, minority report, um, that much more current. Yeah, no, I think Minority Report was certainly ahead of its time in terms of surveillance, surveillance and uh, privacy and and data and data mining, and it understands that. But I think because the film is kind of rooted in observation, it kind of it doesn't feel like oh, someone read an article of Wired. Like it feels more <laughs> like it informs the world, but it is not the totality of that world. Yeah, I mean, something I always found really interesting is that when Spielberg was putting this together, he assembled a group of futurists, kind of like the top uh, people in different sectors, uh, top scientists, top tech people, and asked them, like, what does the future look like in 50 years from now? What is the most likely scenario? And so that's where most of the tech um, and most of this world comes from, is from that research. Um, and even now, I mean, God, we're nearly 20 years away from the release of this movie now. Um, you can see some aspects have have kind of come to fruition already a little bit, and then in other areas, the future is much different than the future that we thought it would be um, back in two thousand two, which I just find really fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean it's one of the things that leaps out in like the way that it is not the future is there's still a, a, a lot of reliance on physical media in Minority mm -hmm. Report. Yeah. And yet I'm kind of okay with that. It's like, cause you don't want to wag your finger at like, well, that didn't come true. Because <laughs> the way you have to think about it is, is this visually interesting? So if a film where people are just moving files around in the cloud is not a particularly visually, it's not a visually captivating image. Whereas like, if there's like, you know, these sort of clear discs that show you what's on the disc as you're holding it, that's a cool visual. And that yeah. works a lot better than, it's in a file folder, Mark Prime. <laughs> I uploaded it to the cloud just now. Yeah. That's not visual. Yeah, I think you're right. I think people, um, uh, I think that's not the way to watch movies first and foremost is, uh, you know, for like, how accurate was this? Like, we don't have our hoverboards. Like, well, Zemeckis was just having fun with that movie. So he didn't really care. So that's not really the right way to watch that movie. Um, but yeah, I think, is it visually interesting? I think when, when Spielberg was sitting down and like, that's not, 
a, a visually interesting thing. I think Fincher even talked about this when he was doing uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo and social network. Like what, how do you make it, how do you make people typing on computers cinematic? Um, I don't think he figured that out, but it's tough to do. So yeah, I don't know. This movie, it holds up tremendously well and I still feel like it's underrated. I think it's, yeah, I think it's, a weird film in his film in Spielberg's filmography because it doesn't it's so dark it's it's yeah. really dark and even in his darkest movies he kind of offers you that glimmer of hope so like it's not that Spielberg hasn't made a dark film obviously Schindler's List Saving Private Ryan there's a lot of darkness in those but I think because they are about real things that happened rather than sort of this sci-fi world that that dark sci-fi, it feels more like a blip in Spielberg's filmography rather than like, oh, no, that's not who he really is. And I'm like, maybe he is. Maybe <laughs> there is that darkness there and, like, you don't want to see it because, like, the guy made E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark, but, like, it's freaking there. And, I mean, especially when you watch uh, AI and Minority Report, you know, AI came out in 2001, Minority Report came out in 2002. Like, there are these very bleak visions of the future. Um and while well, AI is informed, obviously, by Kubrick's, you know, um, beliefs, I still feel like Minority Report as a as a Spielberg film is also pretty pessimistic about the future and yeah. really starts, I think, also, I, I don't know when they started shooting Minority Report. It must have been probably summer 2001. But it was probably one of those. The, the there's a thing that Spielberg does where he preps two movies at the same time and then he shoots them back to back, but just bangs them out yeah. like crazy. I'm, just, I'm curious about how much was Minority Report shaped by 9/11 because obviously Terminal, War of the Worlds, and Munich are all shaped by 9/11. So yeah. I'm just, I don't, and I honestly don't know the answer to like how much is is Minority Report shaped by that as well. I have that information for you, Matt. Okay, let me find out. Uh, it shot from March to July of 2001. Um, so the post-production was shaped, but not the, the actual production of the yeah. film. So he just, he was just being bleak up front. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at like the, the two films that Spielberg has a screenplay credit on are Close Encounters and AI. And those are two, I think, of his darkest, most cynical films. Mm-hmm. And you could look at Close Encounters and say like, oh, you know, it envisions aliens as, um, benevolent or at least kind creatures um or at least non-violent creatures but it's still a guy choosing to leave his family to be with aliens uh, no no let's let's recap close encounters okay people get abducted for yeah. decades <laughs> and like lose their family for decades then okay then he become not then he goes insane yes he doesn't just like leave his family he scares his family <laughs> His family is traumatized because daddy went nuts and then daddy gets on them on the spaceship and leaves forever. (laughs) Close encounters of the third kind. (laughs) Written by Steven Spielberg. Written by Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And then AI is just, uh, you know, emotionally traumatic, I think, from start to finish. Um, Even if you do read that ending as hopeful or happy, it's such a fucking lonely movie. It's a a very low opinion of humanity. Like yes. a very low, like humanity is is creating the authors of its own destruction and humanity is, you know, casually cruel with beings that they believe are beneath them. It's, it is a bleak film. Westworld, what's up, bitch? Yeah, well, <laughs> we'll talk Westworld next week. <laughs> um, but I will simply say right now, you can't 
make a movie about dehumanization unless you have some appreciation of humanity in the first place. And I think that's Spielberg absolutely does. I yeah. think Spielberg values life and appreciates life and sees the beauty in it so that when it is torn down, it really hits you. Like I never, like, and that's the thing, like no one would ever, you know, I don't think most people would call Spielberg nihilistic or cynical. Like no one would ever attribute those characteristics to him, even though his movies can be very dark. Yeah, no, I don't think so at all. Um, and especially looking, I mean, so Minority Report is a project that he had been working on for quite a long time, I think, actually, because um, he had been wanting to work with Tom Cruise. Uh, and the project kept getting, first it was delayed for Mission Impossible 2, and then it was delayed for AI. Um, but in the original script, Whitwer was the bad guy. And Whitwer created, um, he basically doctored footage that showed Anderton killing someone. And therefore, Anderton believed he was going to kill someone because he could not believe it because the system is infallible, um, which then triggered a precog vision of Anderton killing someone. And it ends with um, Anderton killing Whitwer and one of the precogs also killing Whitwer because were killed like uh, one of the brothers yeah it was weird um scott frank really did the heavy lifting on like the final draft and getting it there and shifting it to the burges and you can see spielberg trying you can see spielberg interested in doing a bunch of different things here because on the one hand it's it's film noir on the other hand it's it's pure gumshoe mystery and then it's also just kind of a not nihilistic, but uh, just a really downer sci-fi tale. It's got and it, the Philip K. Dick voice. Yeah, it's got the Philip K. Dick, um, you know, and, and I think you can see this Spielberg in it is in Anderson's relationship with his son. Um, I think that's kind of, you could probably infer that that's what Spielberg brings to the table there, really. Um, but it is, I'm trying to think, has Spielberg done like a, is this his only ever like noir riff? Um, Noir riff, gosh. Bridges yeah. Wise is not noir. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's probably as close as he's ever come to doing noir. If, yeah. Off the top of my head. And it's fun. I mean, the mystery and the plotting, I think, is really well done. And uh, it's a really engaging mystery. And, and you have, in place of the femme fatale, you have um, Agatha. Um, and... Yeah, I don't know. I think I think it plays with those conventions pretty well, and and also dealing with the the cinematography as well as is drawing from classic film noirs, and you get the liberty to get a little abstract with it with the precog visions. I think because um, those are a little a little bit more classically film noir because you're dealing with light and shadow basically. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. I was obsessed with this movie when it came out. I just found it really fun and thrilling and twisty and neat, and I don't think I appreciated the the depth of it. Yeah. And I, I do wonder if maybe that, I think it. I also I think, think like it, it was a summer blockbuster. And I think yeah. that, like, ah, Spielberg with a new summer blockbuster. Like, and so it do, you didn't, you weren't looking at it as like, oh, there's a lot of layers, especially in 2002. Like that's just not how blockbusters were operating nowadays. It's like, oh yeah, a blockbuster can have a brain. And like, we sort of appreciate it when it does. So like when like an Inception or like a Mad Max Jury Road comes along, it gets like a lot of attention and like people are like, oh, stop what you're doing. But Minority Report is part of like, it comes before all of that. Yeah. Well, and I think it also, I think something that hurt it a little bit was that it came on the heels of Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, and AI. And those are just three dark, bummer, um, really thematically challenging films 
And so I, you, I think you could look at Minority Report and say, like, well, it's not as dark as those, or it's not as serious as those. It's got big action set pieces. I, I think that car um, factory action chases still holds up incredibly well. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I think it's not that people didn't know what to make of it because the film was a hit and people still like it. But I think yeah. you're right. It doesn't. It didn't really sort of. It wasn't appreciated for as deep as it was at the time because it. I guess because of its action movie trappings and Tom Cruise and and what have you. Yeah, and I think Colin Farrell is pretty good at it. I think Farrell has admitted in recent years that at the time he was uh, really cocky and kind of a jerk. Um, so I think he he kind of uh, not that he didn't take it seriously, but I think he felt a little threatened by Tom Cruise and was kind of like one upsmanship and kind of showing off. Um, I think I'm remembering that correctly because he did a, a really great series of interviews fairly recently. Um, I guess it was probably for Killing of a Sacred Deer when he was pretty candid about um, kind of his younger self and stuff. And I do wonder what um, kind of performance he would give today because I, I feel Danny Whitwer, I think it's a good performance, but I think we've seen a lot better from Farrell. I would have been curious because I believe Matt Damon was considered for the role. And I yeah, I think he would have been a good fit because – you look at John Anderton and he's more of like a street smart sort of cop. Like he's like, I, I have experience from this job. Whereas Danny Whitworth is like, I'm the Harvard boy. I'm the sort of, you know, I've, I've come up through academia and, you know, the you know, I'm in the government and sort of this coddling effect. And I think Damon would have been good at sort of playing off of that. Yeah. I think he would have been really good as well. Um, did, has Damon worked with Spielberg yet? I know there've been a bunch of a couple of like close, close calls. calls, but I don't think he's worked with them yet. So yeah, cool. except for this one movie, you're gonna, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna kick yourself when you remember what that film is. Uh, oh, Saving Private. <laughs> there you go. Uh, son of a bitch! <laughs> I look like a dummy. <sighs> yeah, the the just suddenly got older in the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking like Damon, like peak career. Um, that's when I, where I was kind of framing it from. But yeah, I think uh, I think he would have been good in that role. I agree. Um, as for Cruise, you know, we've talked about this on our long Tom Cruise podcast, but I, I, I on the one hand, I understand why Tom Cruise is like nothing but action movies. I'm going to do nothing but action movies. But I miss him in these kind of roles. I miss him being like dark and dramatic and really going for it, pushing himself as an actor and, and instead of just pushing his body. You know, because yeah. that's what I feel like when I'm watching a Mission Impossible film. And that's well, that, that's what we talk about is Tom Cruise is pushing his body to the limit. And someone remarked, like, now that the Mission Impossible sequels have been pushed back, he will be 60 when they come out. He'll be <laughs> 60 fucking years old. And he will be able to do so many more push-ups than I can. Exactly. Like, and he, <laughs> that's the thing. He's a very healthy 60-year-old. And, like, he can do those movies. But it's sort of like I feel like that – that period. And I wish someone would ask him about this, not in like an insulting way, but like, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you were working in these more dramatic realms with, with directors like Paul Thomas Anderson and Stanley Kubrick. And now it's more about the action and the franchises with you doing Top Gun and, and, uh, you know, Mission Impossible. Do you have any intent to ever return to working with auteurs in these dramas? Cause I think that's a more, I think he can do that. That's the thing that's frustrating. It's not like, oh, well, he tried and he failed. He did a really good job. Yeah. And he does a really good job here in Minority Report. He's great. He's fantastic in it. My favorite scene in the entire film is when Agatha is telling Ethan and his wife uh, the story of their boy. 
of like what happens when their boy grows up, this vision of him going on and living a life um, and yeah. then coming back. It's this beautiful monologue that I think Samantha Morton knocks out of the park. Samantha Morton gives such a good performance in this movie that I have never been able to see her as a normal person. <laughs> like it, it's just such an affected, different, unique performance. Um, it's hard to shake. But uh, Cruz in that scene, I think is just, heartbreaking and you know he only did a few more after this i mean he did the last samurai which was that was coming on the tail end of like the brave hearts and the gladiators where studios were still making these big historical epics led by a movie star um and i think last samurai is okay but the big one i think around there is collateral um yeah where he gives one of his best performances yeah just a tremendous villainous performance um and then he he does War of the Worlds, which I'll come back to because I wanted to talk about Spielberg. Um, but then he does Mission Impossible Three, and kind of from then on, you have you have like a detour in Lions for Lambs, which is just a terrible movie, awful movie. <laughs> I hate it so much. So um, yeah, and Valkyrie, which I think he thought was maybe a, a bit of a dramatic. And I do know that him and uh, or he and Christopher McQuarrie in recent years have kind of defended. Um, gosh, what's the name? American Made as kind of like well, this was a an adult. Um, oriented film performance. Kind of, but it's still in that sort of like freewheeling kind of like more of like a, it, it's still a little, I'll put it this way. American Made is a film about a drug runner who never does drugs. <laughs> That's what I, and it's fun. Like I think American Made is actually pretty fun and well made, but it's yeah. also like, it's a, it's a safe movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, and it was also another example of like the marketing for that movie was kind of centered around like Tom Cruise flew the, flew the airplanes by himself. Like it was another even though it was a drama, they still found some kind of stunt angle to hang exactly. it on. Exactly. Like it's all about like, what is Tom Cruise going to do next? Yeah. And I love it. Like I, I love that he continues doing these insane stunts. I think they're so much fun, but I do miss him um, doing roles like this. And I will be curious to see once he starts aging out of his, these franchises, if he ever does, um, if he returns to working with uh, people like Paul Thomas Anderson or something. Yeah. Um, but in terms of Spielberg, I mean, 2002 was the year that he knocked out Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can in the same year. And they're both incredible, incredibly underrated films. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after that, a couple of years after that is The Terminal. And those three films are considered like the Running Man trilogy. Um, but there is like, there are, I think, um, I think the more interesting film around this period to pair Minority Report up with is War of the Worlds, which is a brilliant uh, film about 9-11. If you have not seen it since 2004, I remember seeing it in 2004. I did not understand. Continue. Oh, 2005. Uh, I did not understand the 9-11 parallels. um, So I thought it was like, all right, like, you know, it's okay. Little, little uh, um, disappointing, but it was fine. but Spielberg is very specifically making a film about 9-11 and the war on terror. Um, and it's brilliant when you watch it through that lens. Yeah. There are elements of War of the Worlds that, that don't totally land. Like, I don't think the Robbie stuff really works completely, like his yeah. son. Um, I also feel like it's sort of, it's a film that feels very post 9-11 in both terms of reacting to the horror of that day while also still having some optimism that this is a fight we can win, which is how that third act is sort of like, let's all form hand, let's do, you know, well, let's all form hands together and yeah. we're going to blow up the thing. And like it, the film works best when it's at its core, it's a family drama about the world falling apart. How do you be yeah. a father 
when you feel like the world is coming apart at the seams? Um, how do you protect your family? And I think that makes it a really rich and terrifying, like to me, like, like I'm haunted like by the scene where like basically they're like ripped out of their car. Yeah. So that people can steal their car. Like basically like humanity will fucking, you know, eat itself <laughs> at the slightest provocation. Well, and that's the that same year he released Munich, which I think was another is another film about 9-11 in different ways about that is like a post 9-11. Like, how do you deal with like a war on terror without creating escalation? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that movie is fascinating if it doesn't entirely work for me. Um, although I haven't seen it all the way through in a long time. I need to rewatch Munich. I remember not really liking it that much because I think it's I like the ending of it, but there are elements of it that just kind of drag for me. Yeah, it's very long. Um, but War of the Worlds, I think, and I think Cruz is, is really good in War of the Worlds. Um, and I think it's, you know, this period of Spielberg's career, he's making a lot of sci-fi films, but he's not making sci-fi films like Ready for Layer One. He's not necessarily making the sci-fi films that audiences were saying, give us more of these. Uh, he's kind of moved past Jurassic Park, and he's delivering kind of really thoughtful, challenging different, um, different kinds of uh, entertainment. Yeah. Call it that. Well, and I think right now, if you look at this era, the current era we're in of Spielberg's career, as he kind of, you know, not to be grim, reaches the end of his life. Because what, he's 80? He'll be 80 soon? He's around there, yeah. Yeah, he's wistful. And you can see that, like, in the BFG. Like, that's a wistful movie about mm -hmm. dreams. And, like, I'm going to make kind of kitty, like, we're going to have, like, big fart jokes and, like, just have fun. And, like, I'm going to make Bridge of Spies, which is about decency and, like, you know, it's total dad movie. And then the I post, love Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies is great. And then, like, The Post, which is, again, like, I want to make a movie about how the media is under attack and, like, how we need it and how it needs to push back because I care about decency and I want to be a part of this. But then, like, Ready Player One is basically just a dad being like, hey, kids. It's, like, when when I read about, like, why did you want to make Ready Player One? He's like, my kids are always playing video games. Like, it wasn't about <laughs> all the references. It's like, my kids are always playing video games. Yeah. He's like, he basically made a movie about, like, hey, kids, video games are fun, but you should also go outside. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He very much did. It's very much like a dad film in that regard. Um, and then, you know, with West Side Story coming up, again, wistful. Like, West Side Story was clearly a film that he loved, and he's like, I want to do West Side Story, but you know, put my, and I don't know how that film's going to turn out, yeah. but I also feel like, I feel like if this is how Spielberg kind of wants to just spend his time, so be it. Like his legacy is established. It's not going anywhere. Um, I think on the, that all being said, I kind of wish he had an Irishman in like yeah. kind of like, and that's, that came out wrong. We're not doing phrasing. <laughs> <laughs> phrasing. Um, no, but I wish he made a film like The Irishman, like Scorsese. Scorsese is making a film about growing old and regret and, you know, as an old man. Like, he, he's making a film he could not have made 20 years ago. And i kind of wondering if Spielberg has that movie in him. I think uh, it's very interesting. Scorsese and Spielberg have been friends for a very long time. Um, you know, there was this classic group of filmmakers, Scorsese, Spielberg, Coppola, um, Brian De Palma. Um, I'm forgetting some. Who? Yeah, George Lucas, who would show each other their early films, and those early films were Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Godfather, and they would, you know, um, uh, give advice and they would shoot second unit on each other's movies, and they've all grown grown up and gone on to different careers of different success. And I think we we most closely aligned Scorsese with Spielberg just because I think those are the two who have had the best longevity. Like they've been making great films for so long. Um, 
But I think they are two very different kinds of filmmakers. But I agree with you. I do wish Spielberg had something like that in him. I think Spielberg, when he gets personal, it's much more subtle. Um, yeah. Like we talked about with, with Catch Me If You Can, like that's essentially a mea culpa to his father, who he, uh, you know, his entire life he thought his father had left his family when in reality, which he didn't discover until the late 90s, his father left because his mother had an affair and his father didn't want the kids blaming the mother. Um so that's what Catch Me If You Can is about. But if you don't know that, it's hard to kind of read into that. Um, he's not necessarily wearing his heart on his sleeve, even though we kind of make fun of Spielberg for um, being overly sentimental sometimes. Um, so I think you're right. I think it, it does look like he's a little bit wistful, a little bit like what are different kinds of movies uh, that I haven't made yet. But I think his version of A Wolf of Wall Street is Bridge of Spies. I mean, Bridge of Spies is essentially a film that asks, what is America? What yeah. does it mean to be an American? Um and probes into that question. Like it doesn't offer easy answers. And, but that's also a film that you could easily, if you're half paying attention right off as just a boring dad movie, you have to, you have to kind of work at it. Whereas Scorsese film, I think a little bit more bombastic in terms of, um, uh, not that they're easy to read. I mean, people misread Wolf of Wall Street, but um, they're a little bit more explicit in that. Yeah, they're aggressively about something. And, feel, yeah. and Scorsese has always been like, my movies are aggressively about something. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, God, I'd love to see Spielberg do something like Silence that's just like, yeah, because Scorsese admittedly is talking about being towards the end of his career, and that's what The Irishman is about. But that's also what Silence is about. That's him reconciling his faith. And I kind of feel like Kidnapping of Edgar, Ed, Edgardo Mortara. Uh, I can never say the name. You know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara. Mortara, yeah. Anyway, like that felt like something like Spielberg with something to say, but he just couldn't find the right kid and it all hinges on the kid. So yeah. I, I will know. say what gives me hope is that he left Indiana Jones five. Like that's yeah. him saying that's him looking and saying, I only have a certain number of films left in me. Do I want to spend two years of it on another Indiana Jones movie or yeah. do I want to make something else? And I mean, maybe maybe we'll be wrong. Maybe he'll be like, you know, I'm teaming up with J.J. Abrams to make an anthology sci fi movie like uh i don't know <laughs> I don't, you know what i don't think spielberg's ever going to make another make another anthology film again <laughs> that's true that's true uh yeah that that's the wrong example but you know what i mean like maybe uh yeah know. he's gonna like maybe he'll just do something like super super eight part two <laughs> yeah or like you know what i will make a dc movie for warner brothers yeah i know like that's floating in the ether what a weird thing so who knows? It, it did feel like Ready Player One was just like, because, you know, he's offered everything under the sun was him finally relenting and be like, OK, I'll do one for you. Like, I'll do one of these big movies that I'm being offered. Yeah. I was curious about Robopocalypse, which fell apart um, pretty late in the game. But that was like Chris Hemsworth and Anne Hathaway about. about Drew Goddard. Drew Goddard. Yeah, Drew Goddard. Yeah. yeah. That's just Drew Goddard's kiss of death, man. <laughs> <laughs> I always forget about Robopocalypse and his like series of unfortunate events of, you know, getting these big projects that then fall apart. Yeah. So. But Bad Times of Yale Royale is brilliant. So. Exactly. So, yeah, um, if you haven't seen Minority Report, it's on Netflix. It's fantastic. I uh, highly recommend it. It's I would say it's one of Spielberg's best. I would as well. Um, and highly underrated and also just super entertaining. Just yeah. Really. It really moves. Good. Yeah, it does. Um, all right. Well, with that, let's let's move on to recently watched. What have you seen lately? 
Um, so since, you know, I am at home for the foreseeable future, I decided to go through TCM and just record a bunch of things coming up. Um, and one of these things was gentlemen prefer blondes, which I had never seen. Um, I've seen some Howard Hawks films. I have not seen enough. Uh, but as a fan of classic Hollywood musicals, this is one I, I, that I was always curious to see. Um, and also one, honestly, my fiance and I just needed like a feel good movie. So I was like, all right, yeah, this should be fun. Um, and it's super fun. It's Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell playing two best friends. It's essentially a buddy film about two women. Um, Marilyn Monroe is uh, literally a gold digger. I mean, she is just this character who likes money. Uh, the the song from this movie that's famous is Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Um, if you've seen Moulin Rouge, you understand. Uh, and then Jane Russell is kind of like her smarter, savvier um, best friend who's also very flirtatious. So Marilyn Monroe is engaged to be married to this goofy guy, um and she is sailing across the atlantic and the goofy guy uh tasks jane russell with watching after her making sure she doesn't get into any trouble uh on the ship um hijinks ensue they sing uh songs that are fun there are some really crazy uh musical numbers in this film uh diamonds are girls girl's best friend is is probably the signature one but there's another one uh set inside an indoor swimming pool with jane russell that's just like and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but like extremely gay. And it's kind of interesting that that scene made it through at that time. Like the men are all wearing nude swimsuits. Um, and Jane Russell is, is very just, no dames. Yeah. Yeah. It's very no dames. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> from Hail Caesar. Um, but it's just the movie is just so much fun. And Marilyn Monroe, uh, you know, this was fairly early on, early on in her career. Jane Russell was a huge deal at the time. Um and commanded a, a huge salary for the film and even brought over like her own cinematographer and her own choreographer. Uh, but Marilyn Monroe kind of steals the movie is just this really, like I could see uh, like Anna Ferris kind of channeling this character in like just friends. It's kind of, uh, kind of an airhead, um, but just really charming and funny and bubbly. Um, and the comedy in the film is just really fun. Howard Hawks is an interesting filmmaker because he, you know, was essentially a journeyman. He did a ton of different kinds of genres and it was hard to kind of nail down a signature Howard Hawksian style, but was just very good at making a bunch of different kinds of films. Um, I guess maybe a little bit like a James Mangold, maybe. Um, yeah, like him and John Ford are kind of like in my mind, they're kind of interchangeable in terms of like they could do a bunch of different kinds of genres and excel at all of them. Yeah. I mean, I know John Ford is more synonymous with the Western, but, you know, maybe I guess John Huston would be a better example because John Huston did Maltese Falcon and a bunch of other <laughs> classic films. Yes, someone described the difference between Howard Hawks and John Ford uh, as uh, John Ford is poetry and Howard Hawks is prose, mm. which checks out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, this is just a super fun, classic 20th Century Fox Hollywood musical. Um Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe are both very funny, both very charming. Uh, I don't love the ending. I don't really love where it ends up, but, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter in films like this. Uh, I mean, you think about Singing in the Rain, like the most famous musical of all time, like does um, that final big musical sequence make a ton of sense? Not really, but it's just to enjoy a giant. And like, you just kind of get lost in it. Yeah, it's to enjoy. It's to to have fun. Um, And I think for people unfamiliar with musicals, the best way to describe it is kind of like these were, if these are like the Marvel movies of the day, then the musical numbers are the, 
the action set pieces. Like they don't always entirely have much to do with the plot and they're maybe a little too drawn out way of saying something that could have been said in a single line, but that's not the point. The point is to go and see that thing. So Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I highly, highly recommend it if you're a fan of classic musicals um, uh, or musicals of any sort. Um, and it's a great one to watch on like a date night. Nice. Yeah, I, have to, I haven't seen that one, so I'll be sure to check it out. Um, for me, I recently watched Catherine Bigelow's second film, Near Dark, which I hadn't seen since, it was, since I was in college. Uh, the film came out in 1987, stars Adrian Pastar, um, Bill Paxton, Lance Hendrickson, uh, Jeanette Goldstein. Um, basically, the plot is uh, it takes place in Oklahoma, uh, in the Texas Southwest region, and this uh, cowboy kind of falls for this girl who, surprise, is a vampire. Um, and she bites him, but she doesn't. And so he starts to turn into a vampire, and he basically gets kidnapped by them and is forced to, like, kind of go along on their shenanigans. And he's sort of, like, getting that thirst for blood, but he doesn't want to kill anyone, whereas all the other vampires are very much okay with it. And the two things that kind of jumped out at me on this recent viewing is aside from the fact that it was much better than I remembered it. I wasn't, it's one of those films where like you have to see it when you're in college and then like, you don't really appreciate it, but it kind of gets added to your cinematic knowledge. And then when you're older, once you've seen more movies, you're like, Oh, I can appreciate this more now. And Catherine Bigelow is just like, even by her second film has complete mastery. Like there's some, just the shots in it are gorgeous. Has this great tangerine dream score. Uh, it very much knows what it's about. Um, and the other thing that really jumps out at me is like, yes, it's a vampire film, but it's also a Western. And the idea is this whole push and pull between the domesticity that Adrian Bastar's like, like his life represents and the frontier that the vampires represent, sort of this renegade freedom that they can do whatever they want, except be in sunlight. Um, and what's really interesting when you w look at it in sort of Bigelow's whole filmography and i don't think we talk enough about Catherine bigelow like we talk about her because she's like she's very accomplished and she's the first woman to ever win the best director oscar and currently the only woman to win the best director <laughs> oscar which is insane but i you know she has these classics to her name in terms of like not just near dark but also like point break and then of course you know she won the oscar with the hurt locker and then people were talking about zero dark 30 but what's interesting is when you start looking at like her whole filmography and and the, I do have blind spots like I haven't seen um oh gosh the Jamie Lee Curtis one where she's a cop I haven't seen that one I haven't seen the one her first film with Willem Dafoe so there I have a few blind spots but something that jumped out at me is that I think what Bigelow is kind of drawn to in the films at least that I've seen from her is that she's very concerned with the notion of like freedom and in terms of Freedom is both this powerful draw, but it's also inherently very dangerous. Like it, it inherently, freedom will inherently be abused by those who can most take advantage of it, sort of the outlaw, as it were. And you sort of see that in Point Break and then sort of the flip side of it in a film like Zero Dark Thirty, where the U.S. is acting recklessly um, and sort of in order to keep its freedoms, it will do whatever it wants to achieve its own goals. Hashtag um, whatever it takes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, and then, you know, you get to a film like Detroit and well, obviously Detroit, I think, I think it's a really powerful film, but I also acknowledge that like, it's not perhaps the best idea for a white woman to make a film about black people being abused. Like I think sometimes there are stories that are yours to tell and stories that are not yours to tell. But I think what she does capture in Detroit is that the white police force are acting with complete freedom, complete impunity. 
They have, and so naturally that power is going to be abused, that there is no check on them. And Detroit obviously is very much a film that's in conversation with the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of poli militarized police forces. Like it's a film about today that's, you know, about the Detroit riots. But I think, again, when you keep, when you keep coming back and you, if you go all the way back to Near Dark, you're like, here are these vampires who are free to do everything, anything they want. And what they're choosing to do is they've essentially used their freedom to become a pack of wild animals. And essentially, they're, they're a pack of predators who feed off humans because they can and nothing can stop them except for sunlight. Um, and it's just, so it's a really well-made film. It'll be on Criterion Channel till the end of April. So if you haven't seen it, be sure to check it out. Um, we don't talk enough. We need to do a Catherine Bigelow podcast. I'm saying it right now. Yeah. Some point I haven't seen Near Dark. Um, seen Point Break and obviously in Hurt Locker and um, seen K-13, The Widowmaker. 19? 12. K-12. <laughs> I got all the numbers. 12. How dare I? Um, yeah, I have a number of blind spots in my uh, Catherine Bigelow filmography, including Near Dark, so I need and, to get on that. Yeah, another, the, the one that I heard is really trippy and really fun, and I think more people should see is Strange Days. Yeah, I've heard good things about that one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, as I said, on next, next week we'll be talking about Westworld Season 3, and then we'll move and talk about uh, There Will Be Blood. So... Those will be our episodes next week. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. And I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This holiday season, it's all about the bedroom. And Casper's Black Friday sale has up to 30% off everything you need to make your bedroom your happy place. Only Casper mattresses are made with 86 supportive gel pods to align your spine and eliminate aches and pains. And Casper bed frames are made from the highest quality materials. Give the gift of a better bedroom. Save up to 30% during Casper's Black Friday sale on now at Casper.com. Terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms for more details.